Hello, Merry April, and welcome to another episode of the Family Law Podcast from Pump Court Chambers. We've got a packed virtual podcast studio today to react to the judgment of the Court of Appeal in RE-HN and others, the four appeals that were heard together. The appeals raised serious issues about the way in which the family court deals with domestic abuse, both in terms of case management, but also the court's approach to allegations. This judgment, along with the judgment of Mr Justice Hayden in F and M, have prompted a re-evaluation of how domestic abuse is addressed in children proceedings. Before going any further, it's only right to say that this podcast carries a warning for any listening survivors of domestic abuse. Obviously, please feel free to pause or stop if at any stage you are distressed by what we're discussing. And joining me for that discussion are Penny Howe QC and Jennifer Swan of Pump Court and Shona Dillon of Aurora New Dawn. Penny is ranked by the Legal 500 as a leading silk and by Chambers and Partners as a leading barrister. She is an expert in all matters relating to children and has extensive experience of the most serious allegations and issues that can arise in those proceedings. Jennifer, too, is a highly experienced expert in children proceedings. She's regularly instructed on complex private law matters that verge on public law cases and was instructed in connection with the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. And Shona has very kindly lent us her valuable time on behalf of Aurora New Dawn. Aurora New Dawn is a charity specialising in supporting, empowering and advocating on behalf of victims of domestic abuse, sexual violence and stalking. I'm so grateful that she's here to give us her perspective from the front line of the devastating impact of domestic abuse. And welcome to all three of you to our humble podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for joining. So I'm going to kick the discussion off. Perhaps it's one for the lawyers to start with. And it's really following this judgment. What's changed? Um, well, Mark... I, I'll start with that, and I think that the answer to that is that not, not much, has, this judgment doesn't change much yet, um, but it very clearly indicates um, to lawyers, to everybody, uh, that change is coming in the winter. Um, the, sort of primary, the primary change that I see is the, the focus on controlling coercive behaviour. Um, which uh, sort of builds on the case of FNM, as you said previously, that, that they're really focusing on how this behaviour underpins the more sort of um, typical examples of domestic abuse. And I don't mean to say typical um, in, a, in a pejorative way, but the, the kind of allegations that we focus on as lawyers, sort of you know, real headline allegations. And what this judgment really brings in is the fact that actually um, it is incredibly common for those headline, uh, in inverted commas, allegations of domestic abuse really to be underpinned um, by a pattern of coercive and controlling behaviour. And that really was the focus of this judgment and also on the patterns of behaviour rather than just um, focusing on you know, the sort of one, two, five allegations uh, that you can uh, handily uh, set out in a Scotch schedule. Yeah, I mean, sorry, sorry to cut across, Jenny, but do you, do you think this is an example of the family court, I won't say definitely doing, but beginning to appreciate a bit of nuance to this, uh, to, to cases like this, rather than just being able effectively to look past a black eye or whatever and, and understand the more insidious and uh, types of domestic abuse? I definitely read it as that. And I think that what what is as lawyers we we want 
certainty and we want headlines and we want specifics and we want things that we can say on X date at X time, A did B. And this was this is what happened. And it's those neat sort of packaged um, specific allegations that as lawyers you want to focus on because they can be proved or disproved and, and it really helps you to focus a hearing, hence the Scott schedules. Um, but what the court's done with this judgment, um, as you said, is is recognise that there is more nuance and that actually, as I said, the majority of cases where there are you know, a black eye or you know, a punch, there is this pattern of behaviour as well. And what the Court of Appeal does is say, well, actually, I, I'm, I'm not going to focus on these headline, um, headline behaviours. Um, where there's an allegation of coercive and controlling behaviour, that's the headline. And that's what we'll be focusing on. And other things are only pleaded um, if they are so serious that they should be um, that they should be sort of a standalone allegation. If you see what I mean. That, I yeah. Really yeah. I mean, Penny, is this something, is this a case that you feel like you've now got in your arsenal for a case management hearing where you might stand a better chance persuading a judge to take these kind of things more seriously? Possibly. I, I think Jenny's really well outlined the shift in focus to coercive and controlling behaviour. How we go about pleading these cases in future is going to be a really interesting question because there's still going to be a role, I think, for those kind of classic parts of the pleading where specific behaviours are alleged. They can then be litigated, they can be proved or disproved, but it is going to have to be under the umbrella, uh, if you like, of any pattern of coercive and controlling behaviour that might be established. So we're kind of back in the territory, I think, where we're asking judges to make a, take a more holistic approach to cases like this, not become overburdened and overfocused on um, individual incidents of fact that can then be almost compartmentalised into a, a number of occasions of abuse where actually that's missing the point that there may be all sorts of psychological and emotional abuse that are potentially just as damaging mm. in some many ways and are ongoing insidious and ongoing so I, I think it will help but i think there's still some working through to be done as to how we're now practically speaking going to manage this going forward. Yes, we're going to come on to, to how it's being, how, how to plead these kind of things. But just in terms of it, it, it marking change, did you feel in your experience that it needed a judgment like this for, for judges across the country to really appreciate the significance of coercive controlling behaviour and associated types of abuse? I think so. I think so. I think it's a, a positive thing that we have now this seal of recognition on um, on the sort of behaviour that um, far too many victims uh, are, um, are are tolerating, are forced to tolerate until um, something happens that assists them to 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 bring an end to it. Um, so yeah, I'm. I, I think it's a, a really good outcome from that point of view. Um, one which I'm really keen to hear from Shona about because it, it struck me we'd really like to know I think what proportion of the cases Shona has coming into her organisation where this is a feature, where, where this is a pattern that um, the clients are, are, are describing um, and Shona I'd be really interested to know what, what you would say about that. 
I mean, it's very rare that actually there would be any case that doesn't have coercive and controlling behaviour. It is the underpinning of what happens in, in a relationship where there's power and control. Um, and it, I, I, I don't envy you as lawyers on the practicalities of how that works, but it is for the criminal justice system as a whole um, and for the family courts. I understand that sits outside the criminal justice system, but that's why we have the coercive and controlling um, behaviour legislation and why we campaigned for it as feminists, because it's the undercurrent. Context is everything in domestic abuse and it's the undercurrent of patterns of insidious behaviour um, that make up a relationship to be abusive. So, um, you know, I've been doing this work for 26 years and I understand um, that we've only just, um, well, not not us, but the, but the system, if you like, has only just started talking about coercive and controlling behaviour like it's a new thing. And it's not. It is domestic abuse. You know, we've got a nice term for it, but it's all the psychological, emotional, the threats, the degradation, the shame, the the small um, acts that make up patterns of how some how one person controls another, and of course they're interceded with a lot of the time sexual and physical abuse, but they don't always have to be. Um, and actually, a really powerful perpetrator of domestic abuse won't actually need to lift a finger physically in order to gain the power and control that they do over their their um, their partner and children. So I think in that sense, it's incredibly important. Um, it's really, really uh, welcome that actually the family courts are going to have to start joining the dots on what coercive and controlling behaviour looks like and how that pans out in terms of, you know, of, of, of a family and actually how that impacts children because, you know, children don't um, witness domestic abuse from parents they experience it um and so yeah it's it's incredibly welcome in on those fronts and i was really pleased with that i'm i'm, I'm disappointed with other parts of it but i'm sure we'll get on to that <laughs> yeah I, I i will be asking it right i i suppose it's two points really there isn't it it's firstly the family court acknowledging the existence of coercive and controlling behavior as a form of abuse and understanding that that is not as easily dealt with as a compact allegation. Um, but then secondly, it's the nuance of how that specific form of abuse harms children. Uh, and I suppose, Shona, uh, do you think the judgment goes far enough, or maybe it's premature to say that it should, in terms of identifying the interplay between welfare and the abuse? I mean, maybe it is too soon to say, um, but you know what what um, what everybody around the family courts are going to have to start to recognise is that actually children experience those um, behaviours too. So they witness the fact that, and we'll talk about mum obviously because it's usually women um, experiencing from men. Mum will have to behave in a certain way when dad comes home or toys will have to be put away or the dinner has to be put on the table at x amount otherwise the consequences aren't worth living with um or just those that sort of hidden secret nature of what goes on at home so children recognize from a really young age actually and know how to keep those secrets and that their behavior their their abusive parent doesn't behave in the same way as as their friend's dad or their friend's mum 
and so they recognize those things and i think that um the court the the judgment does start to um unpick some of that stuff and 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 working in domestic abuse it is about unpicking that thread it really is about sort of starting to to I mean I call coercive control the invisible noose it's like an invisible noose that hangs around a victim's neck you can't see it but it's always there and it's a script that is constantly in the victim's head and when I say victim I mean children as well so the the the, the dance that they have to um, that they have to act out for for the abusing parent, and so understanding and starting to ask questions around that, and and being much more context specific about what does that mean? Why does that make you feel frightened? How does that pan out? If you take them in in isolation incidents, then they just would look like well, you know, there's nothing there, but actually. You know, if I give you some examples, I'm, I said something about making the tea at a certain time. I worked with a, a woman in refuge years ago. I'll never forget her because she had to make the dinner at six o'clock in the evening, not five minutes to, not five minutes past, six o'clock in the evening. Um, the consequences of which would just be not worth living. And he wasn't actually that often physically abusive because he didn't need to be but the threat was always there and it took her six months for her to make her dinner at five past six because the fear that she lived with and the constant fear and it's that autonomy that you you know we're all sitting here probably waiting to go and have our dinner um <laughs> you know and you know we we just if somebody said that to you you'd think well that's just ridiculous just make it whenever but actually, it's all the other things that are piled on top of, of victims that make for an incredibly um, psychologically abusive situation that is just um, ingrowned in their behaviour and, and in the whole family context. So, so um, yeah, I hope I'm making sense as to what, to what I mean. They can sound like obscure events, but actually, mm. when you join up the dots of what it actually means to live with that, it's, it's just psychological warfare. Perfect sense, Shona. Thank you. Um, I mean, Penny and Jenny, have, especially having heard that, do you think the judgment's done enough? I think it's left us with a lot of questions as to what comes next. And to an extent, I think it had to do that. I'm not sure mm. it could answer all our questions, um, particularly bearing in mind, I think the Court of Appeal was, was mindful that there are other um, bodies investigating certain parallel or overlapping questions. And, and I think that probably had some bearing on how far the court wanted to take things. But what I'm really fascinated by is how we're going to go about managing these cases in future, where what we're trying, what we're alleging, and therefore what we're trying to prove on the balance of probabilities is this kind of repetitive, insidious behavior, which as Shona says in itself, individual examples might not appear all that compelling but put together is what's driving the the domestic abuse that, that's really the engine as Shona has described it to us of, of the entire vehicle of domestic abuse punctuated by these individual incidents and when we come to the decision that the Court of Appeals made about fact-finding this reliance on case management to determine you know, the nature of the allegations the relevance of decision-making to the child and proportionality issues. I can't see how this new judgment doesn't drive us in the direction of, of almost 
compelling the court, absent of admission of this pattern of behaviour, to determine it. Um, yeah, otherwise, I agree. Otherwise, we arrive at that platform of understanding that in this relationship there was this pattern, unless it's admitted. Do you, do you think there's also a tension here between being being aware and recognising forms of domestic abuse, but then the sort of what the judgment talks about, about only resolving disputes that are necessary for the court to exercise its welfare jurisdiction. Yeah. For me, that's a really challenging case management decision to make, particularly at an early stage, particularly where the evidence may be relatively limited. Yeah, I think that's exactly it, Mark. I think we're probably touching on, um, if not the same, then, then closely marrying um, so thoughts and, and, and worries about how this translates into a district judge's court trying to review the need for a hearing at a relatively early stage with two very polarised parties bringing into that um, this need now to step away from convenient scheduling and into decision making about the fundamental nature of this human relationship. I think it's going to be really tricky, <clears throat> very interesting, I think, to see how judges get to grips with it. Yeah, Jenny. What I think was quite interesting, um, this isn't a sort of change that's been brought in by this judgment, but it was an idea that was floated, I think, in submissions on behalf of CAFCAS, um, was that they thought that CAFCAS should be getting involved um, in a much more sort of in-depth way prior to uh, that the fact-finding or no fact-finding decision being made. And because I had I had exactly the same thought, you know, how do you possibly square this circle? Um, but I do see that being potentially quite useful. Um, you know, having it sounds to me more like a social work assessment rather than a you know your sort of bog standard safeguarding checks, which are quite light touch. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I've I've had that. I've had had a fahudra where it's come along and there are plainly allegations, and it's just not possible without more detail and without Kafkas then having a look at that detail to actually be able to give a view as to whether a fact finding is necessary to make decisions about the child. And we effectively just come back from the journey of Hudra with, with Kafkas input. And I do wonder whether you'll see that a lot more, but mm. I don't know whether Kafkas actually has the resources and the time to undertake that, particularly given the prevalence of, of abuse in family law cases. And I don't know how many of us would worry that, that uh, you know, an interview, a, a phone call with a, a, a CAFCAS officer, you know, doing their level best to bottom out what's at, what the issues are and what's at stake here might not be the sort of vehicle that's going to be the most refined tool to assess. Yeah, yeah, the absolutely. Of, of these the concerns in, in any individual case. There's going to need to be some sort of preliminary fleshing out of the allegations, isn't there, before then a, a fact finding is considered? I think so. Uh, it, it's interesting, isn't it, that what the Court of Appeal has said is that um, there's going to be a need to evaluate the existence and extent of coercive and controlling behaviour, but without elongating proceedings uh, because of course delay is detrimental and that's that's exactly the square isn't it that we're trying to see how they're going to make into a circle I mean oh, it's a huge tension yeah and um, Shona you obviously come at this from an outside perspective and probably look at the family court and think they're bonkers at times it, for, we're, we're having this conversation about how the 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 sort of the system, the structure of proceedings might be changed. From your point of view, what, what more could we be doing or what, what more could we be adding into structure to 
better understand and better highlight abuse in these cases? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, I do think the family courts are bonkers. I'm sorry, I'm not going to lie about that. Um, but obviously I see the sharp end of what victims go through and, you know, a lot of repeat litigation, a lot of perpetrators use the family court to further abuse. Um, a lot of perpetrators, you know, that I have been aware of have used the family courts to they desperately want contact and actually as soon as they get that and the family court system's over they don't have contact with their kids they, they you know they don't they don't make contact arrangements and they don't they don't adhere to those guidelines so so for me the family courts is just another tool in which perpetrators will abuse victims and and frequently do um i think there's a pro-contact culture which um is you know, obviously, um, something that's been brought up in the harm report and and again in this judgment, and, and I think that needs to be looked at. In terms of, of you guys, you know, it's just about highlighting that actually, um, you know, victims and survivors will minimise um, what's happened to them because they have to um, in order to be in order to survive and actually in order to deal with the trauma that that they've gone through. So it's about being able to, and I, I recognise that. You know, you're there to do the job of the family courts and, and your 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 role is is very different to mine. But it's just about having the ability to have those empathetic conversations in enabling people to open up and um, and enabling them to feel safe about what they're disclosing to you, because it will be really traumatic for them. And you will only hear um, a tiny fraction of exactly what has gone on. Um, behind those closed doors and sometimes not even behind closed doors and you will also be on the receiving end of a lack of trust in professionals because previous to them speaking to you they will have spoken to uh, you know sometimes many more professionals and sometimes they will not have been believed and they will have a lack of trust or they might have been believed, but the system might have let them down already. So then it's like, well, what's the point? You know, why should I do this? Um, you know, they're also for victims dealing with children who are saying that they don't necessarily want contact with, with you know, with the other parent. And that's really difficult, you know. Um, and some victims will say, no, I really want them to have contact. I just want it to be safe. And by safe, they mean not just physically, but emotionally. Um, and that's not a job that... You, you can necessarily do but it's just about understanding that when the family courts disappear when the court bit disappears that process doesn't you know that family lives with that those children that victim lives with that and we saw that a bit in covid actually we saw quite a lot in covid so when covid hit and the pandemic hit obviously people weren't having contact in the same way physical contact and perpetrators began very quickly to use um the online systems available to them to make sure that they were then featuring in victims homes you know um and saying things over zoom and um you know uh, video calls that mum could hear um you know questions being asked you know the, these behaviors don't go away um they just move and shift so um, I suppose that's a long-winded way of saying just be <laughs> uber aware of the fact that actually you deal with it in, in the same way that I do. We deal with a tiny fraction of what that, that family is going through and we move on. So what our job is in that 
in our tiny fraction and our interactions with victims is so valuable. Um, it doesn't need to be complex. It just needs to be really empathetic. Um, thank you, Shana. I, I've got two questions arising out of that. Um, the first one is frequently we will have a fact finding hearing and then we will have a section seven report. So there is that assessment, but they wait to make sure that they've got the, they know that the factual matrix on which they're assessing, but just listening to what you're saying, do you think that actually cases would often benefit from an earlier assessment or perhaps different parameters, but, but some form of social work input an earlier stage, perhaps pre fact finding? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if social work are involved, but don't forget there are agencies like ours that are involved. You know, you can get notes from organisations like ours just on a request and a consent from from the victim. And we have a plethora of them, you know, so it's about using all the tools in the box for mm. that victim. Um, and then they don't have to tell their story um, so many times. You know, we have, you know, obviously, you know, we're subject to making sure that we we document everything um, fastidiously um, and we, we are. Um, we take requests for data protection all the time. So it's just it's just about thinking, okay, who's that? Who's the victim had contact with? Is it the GP? Has she had a domestic abuse agency? Can we use that, use them? Can we use those notes? Um, and that's happening more often, actually, which is really encouraging. That's good. Um, I, the, the second question I had, which it doesn't really follow, but I, it was just in my head, is you were talking about, well, the, the lawyers disappear, but the abuse is still there once the process is over there are certain orders the court can make to ensure ongoing um, involvement, like a family assistance order. Is, is it something that you'd like to see more in case of domestic abuses is some form of ongoing involvement? I won't, I, I, I'll say supervision in the very loosest sense, just to make sure there isn't just the drop off and the perpetrator is then able to carry on abusing. I think that's really important. It's always something that, that should be considered in, in, in cases where there, there are children involved and where there's been domestic abuse because, um, you know, the majority of perpetrators are serial perpetrators, you know, so, so they, will, they will continue to either abuse, um, you know, the family that you're dealing with and or that they will go on and, and, and abuse others. So any kind of orders or parameters of monitoring some behaviour can help um, you know, it's it's important that we kind of join up all the dots. And, you know, there must be, there are, we, you know, I'm talking about, you know, the majority of victims that we deal with, but there will be cases where actually there, there is successful contact, um, you know, that, that contact centres are used or that perpetrators do choose because they choose to behave the way that they do and they choose to change. Um, but for those cases that don't, it's important that we have some parameters around that. And, and my experience is that most children will vote with their feet at some point um, when they're able to, and they just um, don't end up having contact when they're old enough to make the decision not to. Um, but lots of the time, children do still love their abusive, abusive parent. You know, it's so complex. Um, victims still love the perpetrator. They just want the abuse to end, not necessarily the relationship and I think you know that's where we're dealing with something that isn't binary or black and white um, so every kind of nuance needs to be considered. And Penny and Jenny in terms of the nuance here do you think it's a case to have perhaps more intensive CAFCAS involvement from an earlier stage in proceedings particularly if there are complex issues like this raised? I think 
think it may depend on um, how that's framed and what they're tasked to do. Um, I mean, my own feeling is that Kafka's investigations um, tend to focus very heavily on wishes and feelings. Now that's a good thing in many ways, but it's quite limited in the way in which it's investigated. And I'm never very convinced that children must find it easy to declare themselves the first time they meet a complete stranger as to what they want for their long-term futures. That, that's always worried me. It becomes a very powerful tool once those wishes and feelings have been apparently recorded um, and enshrined. Uh, and it worries me a lot that these are very blunt tools mm. in the armory. Um, so I think it, yes, I think better social work assessment would be excellent, provided it were based on good training about what they're looking for and a good understanding of children and sufficient resource to, to be managed properly. None of which I think is probably currently available to the service. That's the problem. Mm. So it would really entail a big, a really big wide scale change to the way things operate at the moment. Um, great, it's one of those things that I think we would aspire to, but I wonder how realistic it is, unfortunately. Well, yeah, it's always the problem. I think um, I remember when I was in Sydney, I went on a tour of the family court because I'm I'm a nerd, and they every single case has a a Kafka's report equivalent, and they have a maximum turnaround time of six weeks. Wow! And I just thought, you know, the difference compared to twelve, thirteen weeks that we see here is huge. I don't know the quality of the reports. Obviously, wasn't able to read them, but I was speaking to a, a high court judge there who said that he's he knows what it's like in in England and it, it just transforms cases in terms of the depth of understanding and evaluation at an early stage yeah um, but yes perhaps it's wishful thinking at this time um I'm conscious of the time and so I want to move on to to what we've sort of been hinting at but not really talked about which is uh, the decline of Scott schedules and if we are getting rid of Scott schedules and and uh, given their commercial background, that's probably right. Um, how do we case manage these allegations? Where do we, how do we plead them? So, Jenny, would you like to to jump in, or shall I weigh in with my big boots? <laughs> um, I I struggle with this because I think I'm the only person in the world who doesn't hate Scott schedules. <laughs> <laughs> No, you're not. Lots of lawyers love Scott schedules. It's the way oh, we're pleased. We're, we're no, good at that kind of like Scott schedules. Really important, Shona understands it's how we're trained. We are, we are binary beings. We like black and white. We need to be able to rationalize into yes or no. <laughs> so they, they so sort of our it's our default mechanism, isn't it, in some ways, to put things in a nice, neat, orderly schedule and then everyone knows where they are. You can apply the evidence. That's why we're, we are where we are. It's why the Court of Appeal has all this to unravel, unfortunately. <laughs> so anyway, I, I don't think you're alone. Um, it's a culture that we're all imbued in, much to Shona's alarm. It's going to be quite a long time, but we you know, shed the habit. <laughs> But what do you think we should be doing instead, Jenny? I sort of thought I I came at it from a perspective of what would I what would I do if I was thinking about whether I was going to plead 
plead these allegations and what would I do if I was defending them? And, you know, we've all been there when we receive a 30 page statement that just rambles and goes on and you just think, I can't, I can't do anything with this, it's nothing. Um, but what I was thinking about uh, was whether what you would want to do first is get your client either way to provide you with a short sort of overview narrative of their experience of the relationship because that's something that was recommended by the court of appeal in this judgment so I thought well you might as well get used to it and then when you read it without focusing too much on the you know the headline inverted commas um allegations you'd be able to get a better sense of what the the vibe of the relationship is um, and it, it comes down I guess that sort of feeds into what Shona was saying about being really open and very empathetic with your client and wanting to understand their perspective because what the judgment does say is it's not necessarily even just about the behaviours it's about the intention of the alleged perpetrator and the impact on the victim so what affected one person um, terribly may not have affected another person so you're sort of getting the sense from your client as to what their sort of overall overall experience is and then making the decision about how you plead it and then if you are going to you know if coercive and controlling behavior is a feature that's the point where you have to sit down and think oh dear <laughs> how am I going to sort of compartmentalize this as much as I can because whilst the court of appeal does say no more scott schedules as we've identified, it doesn't actually provide us with any alternatives. No. Um, that this is the focus. So so I've been thinking, um, firstly, just thinking about what you've just said, Jenny. I imagine I'd be interested to know what Shona thought, that this business of acquiring the narrative from your client is going to be quite a, a skilled job because I suspect that lots of victims don't recognise coercive and controlling behaviour that they've been subjected to. So it's going to be a question of us all being alert even at the beginning of these cases, to bringing out from our clients the experiences they've had and, and recognising them for what they've been. Sometimes I suspect if, if victims have been subject to this kind of behaviour for very many years, it, it will have become completely normalised. Mm. Um, so Shona, you, you, you can tell me if I'm barking up a... a <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, and starting that conversation can be difficult, but there are tools out there that you can use. I mean, one of the first questions that I would be asking is, are you very frightened? Yeah. You know, um, and and then asking a little bit about the behaviours, you know. So um, lots of victims will say, yeah, but he doesn't actually hit me, so it's not really domestic abuse. Yeah. Um, you know, and then we we use things like the power and control wheel, which is a, a, um, a tool that's designed um, by... A, it was a feminist-led um, group in Duluth in Minnesota, and it's from the 1980s, and it's absolutely brilliant. And it's an actual wheel, and on the outside, it's got physical and sexual violence. And then on the inside, it's got all the coercive control, um, and it's a visual tool, and you can show it to victims and say, do you recognise any of those behaviours? Okay. And actually, just that can be like a light bulb moment, and it's like, well, yeah, I do, and it's like, okay, that's domestic abuse. You know, put the physical and sexual violence to one side, as as catastrophic as it is, and let's concentrate on all of the other things that happened in the middle, um, and that can be a really useful tool to start a conversation. So, I am happy to send you a copy of that. Well, um, <laughs> I was going to say we're going to we're going yeah. to 
developed in training. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> you, Shona, need to come and train all of us and our solicitors. Well, you know, I really, I'm really happy to do that. And, it, it, you know, it is an old tool, but it's it's a, it's a an amazing one. And lots of programs of lots of interventions have been, have been based on the power control wheel. Um, and it does really start a conversation about actually what's gone on. And throughout of that, you will get disclosures of incidents of, mm. well, tell me a little bit more about that. You know, so what do you mean by, um, you know, because there's one that says um, uh, there's about threats um, and degradation, you know, so you can get everything from well, he would call me fat and ugly repeatedly or stupid or tell me I was a really bad parent to actually he kept me in a dog cage, yeah. you know, so it can be, you know, and obviously, you know, you have differing levels of what that means for that person. But yeah, I mean, that would be the place where I start. It's the place where we start, actually. It's those conversations where we start with victims because they will call us and, and the first thing they do is minimise what's going on for them. Mm-hmm. And then coming back to the pleading point, I think just to revert to that, aren't we likely to, um, we still need to plead the case. Maybe we'll be maybe we'll be doing something a bit more like we do in care proceedings where there's a headline and then examples of what we say demonstrate it as opposed and and those are cumulative rather than individualized into to little boxes on a scot schedule so that it recognizes it through the pleading the sort of cumulative um pieces that fit together to demonstrate this pattern of coercive control and, you know, so I, I wonder, I wonder if that's how we might start to manage it. And it also leaves scope in that kind of pleading for individual examples of physical behaviour to be pleaded. And, you know, some instances where I know the Court of Appeal has said there'll still be a, a role for that. Obviously, these are forensically important incidents in their own right, but without losing this, this sense of the pattern um, in, in which, in the context in which those um individual incidents sit um, sorry Jenny to carry on no I I was agreeing with you I think that the days of being told by the by a judge when you've got your you know eight um allegation schedule to cut it down to five and then cut it down to three those days are are well gone Uh, and I think that you could be quite comfortable in your submissions uh, that, that that shouldn't happen and I think there's that focus on the pattern and the sort of having the headline and things to, and facts to prove the sort of headline allegation is a really useful way of thinking about it, it you know in that cumulative way we're going to need training there are I mean it's it's a it's a, just coming back to a threshold document in care proceedings it is a difficult document to draft well um, and if we're all used to Scott schedules, dra- suddenly having to go and draft a detailed threshold or equivalent is is going to be challenging. Yeah, yeah. Nobody likes change. <laughs> no, I, I suppose the other thing is is Jenny, what you were saying about well, we're going to comfortably be able to say, well, no, we need these eight allegations in, but where does it leave us in terms of court time? Because it's hard enough to get a a two three day listing, and of course you balance against that. Well, what if the allegations aren't true? Yeah. And then the child often, often there's no contact. Yeah. And, oh. and we've got, you know, 22,000 cases, 40% of the cases coming through have an aspect of domestic abuse already identified, never mind those where it hasn't yet been uh, teased out. Um, I know I, I am very glad I'm not a district judge and I'm very <laughs> glad I'm not trying to 
you know, manage the resources that are at our disposal at the moment. Um, I don't know. It's difficult. It is. Part of squaring the circle is going to be funding. It's not not a legal point. It's a a totally practical point. It comes back to what you were saying about the CAFCAS early involvement. You know, it, it means nothing with the greatest of respect unless it's properly funded and they can do it properly. And it's more than it's all all the things Mark was identifying. It's court estate, it's judicial time, it's it's not just money, it's actually hardware. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I hope it will bed in. I hope we're going to find a way to make it work. Because Shona, you you will remember all those years ago when there was a shift in focus um, in relation to the impact of domestic abuse on children. Mm. And it was going to be a new focus on this issue that you identified earlier as to the pro-contact culture and the idea that it was contact at all costs. Mm. I don't know what you think, Shona, but I haven't really felt the follow through from that headline that we were quite, not well, quite excited about. We thought it was going to headline a shift and it didn't really in my experience. No. No, it didn't in my experience either. Um, it, you know, it, it's um, it's not happened in the way that it should. Um, it's good that it's back on the table, yeah. um, you know, because obviously we, we do have cases where children are being forced into contact um, against their will and obviously cases, tragic cases where children have been murdered on contact and, and, and mums have said repeatedly, please do not send my child to to these contact arrangements. So uh, much to the dismay of Fathers for Justice who would like us, um, who would have us believe that, that um, you know, nobody gets contact, that's just not true. Mm. Um, and, and also recognize that actually um, contact centers are, uh, are not, an, again, is a funding issue and are not a forever solution. So, it, you, know, we, you know, all these things need to be addressed, but mm. you know, I would agree with you that shift penny has not happened um not to any extent that we would want it to yeah it's going to be an interesting one to see unfold yeah definitely well i look i'm i'm conscious of the time and i'm pretty sure that we could sit here and discuss this for for hours and end because there is that much to talk about um but i i just want to say thank you all three of you for your time this afternoon i'm very very grateful um i really appreciate it and thank you shona as well for just it's always so interesting to have another perspective on this because i think we're lawyers tend to be a bit guilty about thinking of things just from a lawyer point of view so thank you so much that's okay can i just say to um to victims if you're listening um that they can call the national helpline on 0808 2024-7 or if you're not you're in hampshire we've got a 27 24 7 helpline which is 02394 216816 Thank you very much, Shona. And it's been incredibly valuable to have you here. We really, really do um, both appreciate and um, and are educated by your perspectives. Um, oh, likewise, likewise. I like listening to lawyers. You're all very fascinating. So, <laughs> in our well, we, we like to think so anyway. But uh, <laughs> I mean, you're, all odd. You're, you're all absolutely odd, but I like listening to you. It's like listening to a doctor. <laughs> Yeah, well, that, that, that bodes well for our listeners. Um, and I, I'll just finish by saying, listeners, if you do have any suggestions for topics, um, mine and Tara's emails are on the, on the website. Uh, so please do get in touch if we're not talking about things you want us to talk about. Otherwise, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye, everyone.